You can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, getting close to the end. Well, not the end, but well, maybe, who knows? You never know. I mean, it could be the end. We don't know. Come, we expect the Lord Christ to come. But as we, we look at our verses this morning, I just want to read uh, verses 25 to uh, 30. Uh, two for us, um, just so we can keep it in, in context as we've been going through this. We've been talking about the purpose of God for Jew for the Jews and the Gentiles, and uh, we're going to see that a little bit more today. But follow along in your Bibles as we read God's precious word, uh, beginning in verse 25, Romans chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will, uh, and this, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Uh, last week, we've been in this study for four weeks now, for the purpose, God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. And uh, the first week we looked at it involves the grace of God in verses 1 through 10. Secondly, we looked at it involves the grafting of God. Um, that he grafted us into Israel and he'll graft them back into that illustration of the olive tree here that we went over in verses 11 to 24. And then last week we began to look at it involves the guarantee of God. And the first thing we looked at was in verses 25 to 27, his promises. And um, we we understand that Israel's blindness, as we know it, their deadness spiritually, is a temporary condition. It's not something that's going to last. And that's a mystery. And Paul kind of unfolded that mystery for us. We looked at this last week. Um, it's basically threefold mystery. First of all, the first part of the mystery was a part of Israel was hardened for a limited period of time. And remember, back earlier when we were studying Beginning in, in chapter 11, Paul said, well, he must not have cast aside all of Israel because I'm of Israel and I'm a, a believer in Christ. So there must be a partial grace that's being granted to Israel. And we don't see a lot of Jews being saved today, but we, you do see some. You see some coming to a proper understanding of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first part of that mystery was a part of Israel is hardened. Not all of Israel, but just a part. And it's only hardened for a period of time, a limited period of time. And then secondly, part of that mystery that we looked at last week was the salvation of Gentiles will precede the salvation of Israel. So what happened was God came to the nation of Israel, chose them to be his people. He granted them with many blessings. He gave them his word. Um, he gave them times of fellowship. He gave them a way to obey him. And a way really to take his word and the message that God is a personal God and offers forgiveness to all, to the whole world. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Israel didn't get it. And so they got caught up in their religious practices and their traditions so much that they miss the forest through the trees. And so 
God said, all right, for a while here, I'm going to set you on the sideline, Israel. You're still my chosen people, but I'm going to set you on the sideline, and I'm going to reach out to the Gentiles. I'm going to take the message that was meant for you to distribute to everybody. Since you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> and so that's exactly what he did. He went out to the Gentiles and began to proclaim the gospel. That's when we see the church being born. That's where we see Paul and others sharing the message of Christ, the message of God's salvation with a lost and dying world, a message of hope and forgiveness through Christ to the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles respond, and they respond overwhelmingly. And that's the age in which we live in now, the church age. All these Gentiles are coming to Christ. And we look at the Jews and we go, man, how, how do they not get this? Well, there's a partial blindness there. There's a partial hardening going on. And see, it's not, you can't even say it's, it's really their fault. Because it's, it's, it's folded into the purpose of God. And so God wants us to understand, Paul wants us to understand, that the salvation of the Gentiles will precede the salvation of Israel. But eventually all Israel, and that's the third part of this mystery, all Israel will be saved. And so you have God coming to Israel. They kind of reject God. They're disobedient. He puts them on the sideline. He goes to the Gentile world. He saves them. And everything with God has a purpose. I mean, this should cause us to kind of be able to look at the God that saved us and realize that no matter what is going on in our life, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's bountiful blessings or horrible trials that you're going through, that they all happen for a purpose. God has a purpose in everything. He's not up there just kind of playing with you. You know, hey, I think I'll mess, mess Steve up this week. No, he doesn't do that. Everything that God does has a purpose, especially in the lives of his children, if not the whole world, because God is sovereign, not just over the church, he's sovereign over the whole world. Amen? Amen. So everything that we see, see, that's why, you know, when we, when we come back to, not to get political, but when we come back to this last election, you know, and, and you know, say, boy, I mean, I have not seen anything so divide the church of God as... A stupid election. And in the end, you know what? God, God carries out his purpose. The Bible says that God raises people up and he takes them down. <laughs> so we don't need to be, you know, crazy about this. We just need to say, hey, you know what, God? This is your purpose. This is your plan. And you know what? I'd be the same thing if the, if the president today was a woman named Hillary Clinton. I would be saying the same thing to you. Because it would fall within the purpose of God for us as a people, for us as a country. And see, we, we forget that God is sovereign over all these things. He's not just sovereign in your life when everything's going good. He's sovereign in your life when things are going bad. When you're not getting the report from the doctor that you want. Or... Maybe your family isn't the family that you desire. It's not where it should be. Maybe your marriage isn't where it should be. But you know what? God allows all those trials, all that turmoil for a purpose. He has a purpose. And we need to be reminded of that. And so we want to look today at the purposes of God. We looked last week at these promises in verses 25 to 27. At the end of verse 27, it's amazing because he says, And this will be my covenant with them, his chosen people, when I take away their sins. He's going to banish all ungodliness from Jacob. And we looked at last week the verses in the Old Testament that tell us all about that. See, this is the way that Israel will be saved. They're going to be saved just like we will be saved. They will have to put their faith, their trust in a Savior. But that's not going to take place, it says, until the fullness, verse 25, of the Gentiles has come in. Well, what is that? That means, you know what? God has set <clears throat> Israel on the sideline. Now he's working in the Gentile nations, predominantly. Not completely, because there's still, remember, it's not a full hardening. It's a partial hardening. So there's still some 
Jewish people that leak through. <laughs> they hear the gospel and they respond. You know, just to kind of encourage us, wow, this is this is this can happen. A Jew can come to Christ. You know, that that's that's an incredible thing. And when they do, look out because man, they have all that culture, they have all that knowledge. That, you know, if there's anything about most Jewish families, is they're very diligent in teaching their children the things of God. And so when they come to Christ, boy, they have a wealth of knowledge that's just right there for the picking. Whereas Gentiles, we don't have that. <laughs> you know, we got to go dig hard and figure this stuff out. It's fun sometimes to do a Bible study in the book of Psalms or Proverbs or with, with, with someone of the Jewish faith. Because they look at those, we look at them through, through certain sunglasses that we only see the kind of Gentile side of things. I was able to talk to Andrew Rappaport this past couple of weeks ago when we were down at the uh, Shepherds Conference together. And he was talking about a certain portion of scripture. And somebody said, man, what's this mean? You know, and he goes, oh, that's easy. That's a Jewish idiom. You know, that's just the way it is. You know, and he explained the whole thing. And it was like, wow, I never would have known that. That, that I wouldn't have even taught that if I would have just somebody said, what's this verse mean? I probably would have concluded something wrongly because, but when you dig down and you find out the Jewish culture behind it and the knowledge and the traditions and everything, then it, it makes perfect sense. And see, God has a, a purpose for all this. So here we have all these Gentiles being saved. And now Israel is going to look upon that and they're going to grow jealous, the Bible says. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, we're God's chosen people. Why are all these Gentiles, these dogs, saying that they have a, a, a relationship with God now, that they're welcomed into his presence? See, because their tradition was, you know what, there was, a, there was a barrier between them and God. And only the priest could go in there once a year and into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice and atonement for their sins. But when Christ died, what happened? The veil was torn. It was no longer there. It was available to all. You know, and that is a blessing for us as Gentiles. And in a weird way, the unbelief of Israel is a blessing for us as Gentiles because it allows us to hear the gospel. It allows us, God is using their unbelief, their disobedience for his glory in the salvation of many Gentiles. Well, what's going to happen? Eventually, all the Gentiles are going to get saved. All the Gentiles who have been elect before the foundation of the world are going to get saved. Well, what's going to happen? That's going to be the fullness of the Gentiles. In other words, it's full. It's done. And guess what? Then that's where the rapture happens. Because there's nobody else to be saved. I mean, the, see, if we understood the only reason God left us here on this lovely earth was to reach those yet to be saved, I think that we would have a different idea as far as evangelism and missions and things like that. I mean, to me, that promotes eagerness in my heart to get the job done so we can get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Because we're not going to get out of here until the job's done. And so if we all act obediently and do what God has simply called us to do, live a life that is representative of Christ in a lost and dying world, share a message that is representative of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and unashamedly go out and share that and proclaim that, then what is God going to do? He's going to allow <clears throat> those who are elect to hear that message. They're going to get saved. And you know what? The sooner they get saved, everybody's saved. Well, then we're out of here. I'm looking forward to that. But it doesn't stop there. Because then you have what? The tribulation period. And that's when God is really going to begin to work with the nation of Israel. And he is going to save them. He's going to purge some out. Those who are rebellious, the Old Testament tells us, are going to be taken out of there. But you know what? In the end... We can count on the promise of God's word that says all Israel will be saved. Now, some people today say, well, what do you think that means? What do you mean? What do I think that means? It means everybody who's God has elected within the nation of Israel before the foundation of the earth will be saved. That's exactly what it means. And so it's, it's important that we understand it doesn't mean, well, it's just partial. It's part of the nation of Israel. No. 
God has faithfully kept his promises to Israel over the many years. And God has not forgotten about them. He's not forgotten about his plans. For as they were called by the Lord, that calling will be fulfilled and Israel will come to salvation through Jesus Christ one day. And you know what? Their rejection, their disobedience hasn't gone without a price when you stop and think about it. You think about the Jewish people in general. I mean, they rejected their Messiah. They killed their Messiah. Well, what happened? I mean, in, 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 our, in our society, they probably, in our culture, they have not suffered more than any other people. They have suffered greatly. They've been hated. Even today, they're hated. That little tiny postage map of a place called Israel over there that really doesn't mean anything to anybody, but it means everything to God. And because of that, the enemy wants to take it out. And he's tried over the years. He's tried to use Hitler to exterminate these people. Yet through it all, God has kept his promises to them through every trial, through every tribulation. And for over 1,900 years, do you understand that there was not a nation called Israel? There was not. It wasn't there. 1948, the United Nations created a country called Israel. And since that time, there's been attempts daily by their enemies to destroy them and take that country from them. And because they're blinded, remember, they're hardened, they're not really seeing the plan of God and all this, so they're willing to compromise and give away portions of land that God has given to them. And they're paying a price for it. But God has continued to preserve them, beloved, and their darkest day has not yet dawned. Because during the tribulation period, verses 26 and 27 will literally be fulfilled. God will purify his people so that when Jesus returns in glory and power, the Jews will fall before him, the Bible says, and they will receive him as their king, their Messiah, and their Savior. All of Israel will at that point in time. That's one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. When you read through the book of of Zechariah, it's amazing what you find back there. In Zechariah chapter 12, just turn back there with me in the Old Testament there. Zechariah chapter 12. It says in verse 10, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. Who's that? Israel, right? In the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be great as the morning for Hadad Rimnon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of those of Levi and the wives by themselves, the family of the uh, uh, Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by himself and their wives by themselves. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, and on that day there will be a fountain open." Look for the house of David and the inhabitants of Israel. Why? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See, when Jesus comes, he will redeem them and receive them onto himself. And then we're going to be one big happy family. 
Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9, it says this, He shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he might save us, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Or in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah Chapter 44, verses 1 to 8, and then verses 21 to 28. Isaiah 44, verse 1, it says, But here, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, look at this, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, it's another kind of a political name for Israel, you might say. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your, uh, on your descendants. Verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Why is he telling Israel this? Because they've been chasing other gods. They've been chasing everybody but the only one true God. Verse 7, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Verse 8, he says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it to you? And you are my witnesses. Is there another God besides me? There is no rock I know not any. And then jump all the way down to verse 21. And verses 9 through 20 basically talks about all the, the idol worship that's going on and what's going to happen. But in verse 21, he picks it back up and he says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. You are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have plot, blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. It's done. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrated the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who, who uh, t- turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and on the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That's pretty clear. That God has not given up on Israel. Or even in verse 3 of Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, 3, it says, For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like a garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. I mean, when you go to Israel today, it's kind of like going to the valley out here. You know, I mean, there's just mass produce. Because they figured out irrigation. 
I mean, it used to just be a desert. There's nothing there. So everybody said, ah, who cares? God's, you know, done with them. They don't even have, these people don't even have a, a place to call home. But then you know what? God began to work and he began to orchestrate his purpose and his plan for Israel throughout history. And now they do have a land. And yeah, they're having a tough go of things. But you know what? God has not given up on them. And he wants them to know that, that one day they will be saved. They will be preserved. And it's going to be a great day for the Jew when the Lord Jesus fulfills his plans on their behalf. So don't think that they're forgotten. They're not. They're merely on the sidelines for a while. But their day is coming. And you know what? That picture of Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel over all these years. You know, sometimes as, as Christians, we, we take verses that apply to Israel and we want to apply them to us. And we say, oh, well, that's for us. Well, inadvertently it is because all God's word is for us. But there's some promises that are directly directed to Israel as a nation. But it's also comforting that we can look at how God has preserved them and how his promises and his, um, just his purpose for Israel continues even to this day. And while those verses speak primarily of the nation of Israel, there's comfort in knowing that God will always keep his promises for us as believers, that he can be trusted. I mean, don't you want a God who can be trusted? I mean, who wants a God who will go back on his word? Who wants a God who'll do one thing, say one thing, and do another? See, we can take God at his word and we can know that he will do just what he promises to do. Even back in Romans chapter 4, all the way back, seems like years ago, in Romans 4, when we were studying through there, when Paul was speaking of Abraham, he said this in verse 20, Romans 4.20, he says, No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Look at verse 21, he says, Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I ask you today, are you fully convinced that God can do what he has promised? Are you fully convinced? Because see, if you're not fully convinced, what's going to happen? You're going to be prone to worry. (laughs) And we know what the Bible says about worry, beloved, right? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, prayer and supplication. Well, how does prayer supplant worry? Well, prayer takes the place of worry when you are able to say that, you know what? I am fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And if I got an issue in my life, I'm going to take it to God. Matter of fact, it's his promise, not even mine. I'm just this thing that he uses while I'm here. You know? I trust that you would have the faith to be fully convinced. And this isn't something like, okay, I've arrived, I'm fully convinced, and I never have to. No. This is something you've got to work on every day, beloved. Because the world is knocking against us hard at every angle to make us not fully convinced that God is able you look at the political landscape, I mean, you watch the news and you just want to pull your hair out sometimes. And I don't have any, so it's really frustrating. My grandkids pull hair out on my arm, which just doesn't feel good. Does this hurt, Grandpa? Let us start pulling. You got too much hair on your arm. It's like, oh, man. But you know what? You just have to just take a break from all that and say, you know what? God is in control of this. I'm not in control. The government's not in control. See, in America, sometimes we think that, you know, when we think of of God's sovereignty and raising up leaders, you know what we think of? We, We think of our little government, our little country here. That's what we think of. But you know what? You want something to rattle your cage a little bit? Do you ever think that God raises up people like Putin in Russia? God raised up people like Saddam Hussein? 
They're leaders. God raised them up. God has a purpose. He's carrying out his purpose. See, we, we like to think of the good things. You know, oh, I'm a staunch conservative. Reagan, yeah, he got, God raised him up, you know. Oh, those liberals, no, he, he wouldn't raise those. Oh, yeah, he does. See, and that's why it's just it's apolitical. It's, it doesn't matter because God is carrying out his purpose. And when we become fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, beloved, man, it's, it's so much easier. Because when you wake up in the morning, it doesn't matter what happens. Because you know if you're walking with the Lord and you're, you're doing what God wants you to do, come what may. Come what may. Remember one time we were, I was here at the church doing, some, doing something, I had something going on, I was just into it. You know, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was, I was focused on something. And my wife had to go to the doctor, so she drove to the doctor's and had her appointment. I'm going to tell her, since she's not up here this morning, I can do this. I'll probably have to edit this out of the tape, but anyway. Now, you know, you're, you're my friend, so be, be, be nice. Anyways, so what happened is she goes to the doctor. And then um, she uh, has a kind of a, it's around noontime. She says, you know, to herself, I haven't had Taco Bell in a long time. And she's been trying to eat really healthy. And, you know, so she thought maybe she could just slip over to Taco Bell and grab it through the drive-thru, you know, just real quick. Nobody would know. Had a good result from the blood tests, all this stuff, whatever it was. And she's feeling pretty good. And I'm here at the church work, and I, no, I, I have no idea what's going on. And she calls me. Hey, um, you know, I have a problem. I'm like, what's the problem? Well, the, the tire's flat on the car. I'm like, well, how's the tire flat on the car? What do you mean? Well, I hit something. It's like, well, what did you hit? I don't know. It was like a big hole. And it's like, well, where are you? I thought you were at the doctor. Well, I'm, I'm kind of in a parking lot. I'm like, well... At Kaiser? Down here? I mean, no, it's kind of across the street from Kaiser, you know. So this conversation goes on for about, uh, you know, well, I was going to get some at Taco Bell. It's like, oh, okay, all right. Well, what happened? Well, I don't know. But I can't drive the car. I'm like, all right, I'll be right down, you know. So I drive down there. And there's a, if you drive through the Taco Bell drive-thru, there, there's not through the drive-thru, but right outside in that parking lot, there's a great big manhole cover. Well, someone in their infinite wisdom took the manhole cover off. The big four by, like three by three, great. So I don't know how my car was not, our car, was not in this hole. Okay, but apparently she just ran over the edge of the corner, like the corner of it. And um, it flattened the tire. And so, you know, I look and she's not in the hole, but I'm thinking, well, how did this happen? You know, this is kind of crazy. Anyway, so the whole thing gets resolved and I go over to the tire place and um, I put the spare on, I take it over to the tire place and, and, uh, I'm explaining to them, you know, well, how did this happen? I said, well, I, um, you know, my wife hit a kind of a manhole cover and they said Taco Bell. I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, you're the fourth customer. Okay. And, and I'm thinking, wow, what, what is really, you know, going on here? You know, and, 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 I, and I'm just, I, I tell you that story. I don't know why I told you that story. I, I really don't. I don't. I have the slightest idea why I told you that story. It's not my notes. <laughs> Probably just a tattle on my wife. I don't know. But, yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, think, I think the illustration was kind of like, you know, maybe, maybe when, you know, you think you're going to get away with something. Okay, God kind of, you know, kind of, kind of reveals things and you kind of get caught. All right. Um, you know, Israel is not just on the sidelines, you know, kind of skating. Okay. God sees everything that's going on. He sees everything. All right. And so in our own lives, he sees everything. Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, Paul writes this, and he was explaining his change of plans. You know, he wanted to come, he couldn't come, and they were kind of upset, maybe. So he's explaining to this church at Corinth, and he says in verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you uh, has not been yes or no. Verse 19, for the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, 
But in him it is always yes. And then he says this in verse 20. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, who has anointed us, and who has also put a his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for our joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Sometimes we don't know why things happen the way they do, but the one thing that we can understand is that, you know what? All the promises of God will come to pass. And sometimes we, we fail to remember that. Um, and so here, at the end of verse 27, he just says, you know what? My covenant with them is there. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is an agreement. And this covenant was made by God. There's many covenants in the Bible. But this one is an unconditional covenant. It's not a, you know, Israel was not chosen conditionally. Just like we weren't chosen conditionally for our salvation. God doesn't choose us, select us, put us on the team, and then say, hey, you know what? You know, if you, if you don't do your best, you know, you're out of here. That's not what God does to us. That's what makes our salvation such a wondrous thing. That salvation is forgiveness and removal of sin. It's the eradication of that which separates fallen men from a holy God. That's what salvation is. The power of salvation is not within ourselves, beloved. It's, it's within the grace of God. The condition of salvation is man's faith. But even that faith, the Bible says, is a gift from God. He gives that to us. It's divinely provided by him. And so as Paul has already made clear, as we've studied through this book, our calling to salvation, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, all these things flow into our lives from what? From the sovereign hand of a of a gracious, sovereign God. And so the ultimate salvation of Israel is also assured that same divine certainty. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's got to be a miracle for all Israel to be saved one day. If you ever tried to witness to a Jew, you know what I mean. All their sin will be forgiven. It will be removed. And this is what God purposes and he promises to do. He says, I'm going to remove all ungodliness from Jacob and take away their sins. That promise is unconditional. It doesn't depend on Israel. Just like our salvation doesn't depend on us. Amen? Amen. I mean, think if it did, we wouldn't be saved two seconds. Maybe some of us won. I mean, you know, millisecond. You know, oh, we're lost again. You know, I, I never understand folks within the church that, that you know, meaning well, but they, they don't believe in the perseverance of the saints. They don't believe that, that God's salvation can last. I'm always reminded of what Dr. David Hawking used to say. He'd, he'd say, you know, some people say, well, what if, you know, okay, I'm in the hand of God, but what if I want to jump out? And he talks about how big the hand of God is. And he says, you know what? You may be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle, but you're not jumping out of the hand of God. And that's such a gracious thing to believe and to understand about our faith. And that's expressly what God promises to do, to remove all ungodliness from Jacob and to take away their sins. That promise is unconditional. It's not depending on Israel deciding on its own to come back to the Lord, but on the sovereign Lord. He will bring Israel back. And when you stop and you think about that, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. Well, today we want to look at this purpose 
some of the purposes. In verse 28, it says here, as regards the gospel, you know, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, right? That he came, he was born, that he lived a life that only God could live, a perfect life, sinless life. Then he was hung on a cross. He wasn't killed. He gave up his life, the Bible says. They didn't kill him. Some people say, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. No, they didn't. They were just a pawn being used by God. God was carrying out his purpose through them. Honestly, if you want to know who killed Jesus, it was God. God killed Jesus. God killed his own son. And he did so for the sacrifice of our sins, which we could never have paid for. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're all lost. We're all dead in our trespasses and sin. The only hope we have, beloved, is that someone else could pay that price for us because we can't do it ourselves. And Christ did that. And God saw, too, that his son would go to the cross and not only die and be buried, but on the third day, what's the gospel say? That he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. See, you count any other world religion, what do you do? They always have a little grave for where their little founder or their leader's buried. But you know what? We don't have one. Matter of fact, we got a couple because we don't know where it was because his body's not there. Because he was raised. And so the gospel has this kind of all this this intersection in in our history and all of a sudden he says as regards the gospel they who's the who's the the they they're talking about Israel he says as regards the gospel they are enemies of God for your sake who's you the gentiles so he's saying when when the Israels when Israel, the Jews, heard the gospel, you know, they killed the Savior. I mean, they, 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 Jesus died on a cross. And ultimately, God did that, but he used them to do that. And so when you stop and think about it, they were an enemy of Christ. And yet he was their Messiah. And we, you know, as Gentiles, we look at that and go, wow, how could they be so stupid? How could they be so blind? How could they be... And then you stop and you think, well, wait a minute. Uh, what about me? <laughs> what was my attitude toward Christ before I became a believer, before he converted me? What was my attitude toward God? See, we, we, we've all gone down that path. And so he says, they were enemies of God for your sake. And that's where the Gentiles got to hear the gospel because Israel became enemies of of God because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected God's gospel. God put them on the sideline and he said, you know what? I'm going to start a new work over here in the Gentile nations. So that's to our benefit. If you're, if you're Gentile here today. And so Paul continues to explain that from the standpoint of the gospel, Israel are enemies for Gentiles sake But then he continues and he basically tells us from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Look at what he says. He says, yeah, for the for the gospel, they became enemies of God. So you could get saved. But as regards to election, as regards to God choosing them, they who Israel are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Forefathers refers to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So this this setting aside of Israel is not something that's permanent. And from the permanent eternal standpoint from where God is seated and his sovereign choice over all this, Israel is even now and forever will be the beloved for the sake of the forefathers. He hasn't changed the plan, is what Paul wants us to see. When the Lord elected by divine choice the nation of Israel to be his own people, he bound himself by his own promises. And what did he say he was going to do? He's going to bring the Jews to salvation and to be forever his beloved and holy people. 
See, that's why we're grafted into that as Gentiles. Even though they're enemies of God today, John MacArthur says in one of his messages, you could call them beloved enemies if there's such a thing. Because God hasn't changed his mind toward them. And because of their unbelief, they're just like every other unsaved Gentile. When you stop and think about it, there's no difference there. Uh, Romans 5, chapter 10 and 11, it says, For while we were... uh, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by, to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, the sin in our lives has separated us from a holy God, and so we need reconciliation. We need to be brought back together to the proper relationship with God. Romans 8 verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, that's why works can't save you. Because you could could do multiple good works. And it's not going to mean squat before a holy God. Unless you're reconciled to him through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he wants us to see this very clearly. And then he says in verse 29, he talks about the calling of God. He says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Do you ever stop and think about the calling of God? Calling refers to God's divine election of God. Israel to be his holy people and for us to be his children. God does not change his plan regarding Israel's spiritual regeneration. I mean, when you think of it this way, we believe that God's sovereign grace and election cannot be earned, right? I mean, they cannot be earned. But we also believe this, that they can't be rejected. They can't be thwarted. They're irrevocable. They're unalterable. So when you stop and think about it, nothing can prevent and nothing will prevent Israel from being saved and being restored. Not even her own rebellion, her own unbelief. And that's what Paul says here in verses 26 and 27. Her own ungodliness will be sovereignly removed and her sins will be graciously taken away. But you know what? What is true of Israel is true of every believer in Christ. See, this is a picture of our salvation. In chapter 1 of Romans, verse 7, I'll just read these for you quickly. To all those in Rome who are beloved by God and called to be saints. Or Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things... We know that uh, for those who are called, those who love God... All things are worked together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, Therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, this is Paul speaking, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose, his own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, we couldn't play a part in our salvation even if we wanted to. Because we were saved before we were ever even born. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's all God. Praise God. That's right. And so we see God's calling, but we also see this thing about the gifts. He says, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That gifts is translated charismata in the Greek it has the idea that, you know what, these gifts are flowing from the pure and holy, unmerited favor of God. Everything God gives you after your salvation in Christ, whether it's a spiritual gift or a material gift or a relationship that's a gift, 
It's not because he owes you anything. It's because he loves you. And it's, it's out of his unmerited favor. We don't earn that. And it's his decision to make. Why did, Israel, why did God pick Israel? I don't know. You could ask the same question about yourself. Why did God choose to save you? Why did God choose to save me? I mean, you could have saved the guy across the street. I don't know. It's his decision. It's God's decision. But it's also his determination. In verse 29, and we'll end with this. It says, for the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. That word does not refer to us. It refers to God. In other words, what that's saying is God does not change his mind. He doesn't change his actions regarding his calling. He doesn't save Steve and then, you know, 10 years into Steve's salvation say, oh man, what I, <laughs> I messed this up. Why'd I pick that guy? Could have picked somebody else. No, he doesn't do that. James Boyce gives an illustration of a Greek philosopher. Heraclitus was his name. And he lived about 2,600 years ago in Ephesus. And it was... He said a lot of different things. But the one thing he said that a lot of people remember was this. It is impossible to step into the same river twice. It is impossible to step into the same river twice. And what he meant by that was that life is in a state of constant change. Although you can step into the river once, if you step out, And then step in a second time. By the time you step back in, the water has flowed. The water has moved. The river is no longer the same. It's a different river you're stepping into. And a lot of people who followed him back in the day understood that all of life seemed to be like that. As if everything is changing and changing all the time. And so Heraclitus said this, if that is so, how is it that things are not in a constant state of chaos? If everything's always changing, why aren't things just all messed up? He answered that life is not chaos because the change we see is an ordered change. And the reason it is ordered and not random is that the mind, reason, Or order of God stands behind it. Now, he wasn't a Christian. No. But he understood in a higher power. See, he believed that God was the only fixed point in what was otherwise a chaotic universe. And when you stop and you think about that, when it comes to Israel, when it comes to their history, when it comes to all the chaos that surrounds them. When it comes to our lives and all the chaos that surrounds our lives on a daily basis sometimes in this world in which we live. It's good to understand a little bit about the God who saved us. It's it's good to understand a little bit about the character of God. And see what Paul is saying in these Scriptures that we're reading this morning and we'll continue next week with is that character and also the plans of God do not change regardless of the way human beings live or behave or alter their lives. See, when we talk about God's irrevocable call, what we're talking about is the doctrine of of God. God's immutability, his unchangeableness, his immutability. It means that he does not change. And because he does not change, he can be counted on. I mean, do you ever deal with somebody who's constantly changing their mind about everything? It's really frustrating. J.I. Packer lists six areas that we can understand in his little book, Knowing God, great book. Six areas in which God does not change. 
First of all, God's life does not change. Created things have a beginning and an end, but God does not. His life is constant. God does not grow up. He does not mature. He does not weaken. He does not grow stronger. God cannot change for the better because he's already perfect. And he certainly cannot change for the worse. Secondly, not only does God's life not change, secondly, God's character does not change. I think one of the most repeated passages in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God is revealing himself to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That is what God was like in the days of the Jewish exodus. And that is what, like he, what he's like today. You know, when we get older, sickness, old age, adverse conditions, they can wear on our good traits as human beings. But nothing like that ever happens to God. He can be counted on to be kind, to be gracious, to be forgiving. And holy as he always was. Thirdly, God's truth does not change. This means that the Bible, all the truths found in the Bible, do not change. You know, sometimes I, I, I talk to other pastors and, you know, their big thing is, you know, they want to be relevant with the culture. And so, you know, well, we're trying to make the scriptures relevant for the culture. It's like, what does that even mean? I mean, how are you going to take something that's truth? that does not change, that's the foundation upon which everything we believe and, and live for and stand for as Christians, and you're going you're gonna to change it to make it better? Really? I, I just don't think that's going to happen. See, when we read the pages of the Bible, we're reading Holy Scripture. And it's as right today as it was the day it was written. Because God's truth does not change. Fourthly, quickly, God's ways do not change. God's ways do not change. Packer writes a little paragraph. He says this. He continues to act toward sinful men in the way that he does in the Bible. Still, he shows his freedom and lordship by discriminating between uh, sinners, causing some to hear the gospel while others do not hear it, and moving some of those to hear it to repentance while leaving others in their unbelief. Still he blesses those on whom he sets his love in a way that humbles them so that all the glory may be his alone. Still he hates the sins of his people and uses all kinds of inward and outward pains and griefs to wean their hearts from compromise and disobedience. Man's ways we know are pathetically inconsistent but not God's, but not God's. Fifthly, he says, God's purposes do not change. The ups and downs in history do not frustrate God or cause him to alter what he has determined beforehand to do. Has he planned to, to uh, bring many sons and daughters into glory through faith in Christ? Then he will do it. Has he purposed to bless Israel in a special way nationally? Then he will do it. What God does in time, he has planned in eternity. And what he has planned in eternity is carried out in time, period. Sixthly, God's son does not change. And this is one of the most blessed truths for us as Christian people, that the Lord Jesus Christ does not change. Hebrews 13.8 says he's the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. And it remains true that he is able to save completely Hebrews 7.25 says, those who come to God through him. And when you stop and you think about how God is working in and through Israel, it's really a picture of how God is working in and through his church. That he has saved you graciously if you're saved here this morning. And if you're not, you need to cry out to him. You need to acknowledge your sinfulness that gap that stands be between you and your creator because of your sin can be bridged like that through Christ. 
when you come and you acknowledge his work on the cross for your benefit. He will save you. He will grant you eternal life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as your promises stand true to Israel, Lord, that we will understand that your promises stand true to us as Gentiles who have been saved. And Father, we thank you that our salvation is not incomplete. Our salvation is not something that needs to be added to or taken. we can't take away from. Father, that we're completely secure in you. And Lord, we, we thank you for that truth. Lord, we pray that we would do everything we can to complete this work of completing the fullness of the Gentiles so that we can go and be with you. That we'll be faithful to our calling to go out and share the gospel with those who have yet to hear, to live a life that's worthy of our calling, to speak words of truth and not compromise. And Father, we thank you for the work you're doing here in and through our church and, and the many lives that are being affected by your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would only continue that work until you call us home. Father, we do pray for Lois. Lord, we pray that you would um, bless her surgery. This coming week, we pray that you would um, give the doctor just beyond even his own ability, Lord, that you would just supernaturally uh, allow this operation to be complete, that this cancer would be removed, and, and Father, that you would be um, caring for her. We know her faith and trust is in you, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray for the recovery process, Lord, that you would... Um, Grant her favor, guard her against any infection. And Father, we trust you to do this. And Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen.